How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I am your co-host, Hannah Seymour. And today we are not yet starting the New Testament portion of our big book cover to cover. We're going to take a few more weeks before diving back into that series. Today we're going to start a brief series called Benchmarks. So dad, tell us about this series. Where did it come from? Why are we doing it? I had uh, been thinking about something interim, and it came to mind that there are certain passages I go back to again and again and again. And so I started one day just writing down a list of all these topics and themes and passages that have meant a lot to me personally. For example, Psalm 101, which I have taught, oh, easily 40 times. I I go back to it in my devotion. I had memorized it years ago. And for me, they were touchstones. And they became, you know, people have a favorite verse or a key verse. Well, these passages became, you know, we later called them benchmarks. But I not only used them for my own personal devotion, but I, I found myself sharing them as like timeless truth with mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. And for example, Psalm 101 is, uh, I call it David's As For Me, My House. Mm. Because he writes this as an inaugural song, more than likely for his installation when he became king. Mm. And you read his choices, his declarations, and they're timeless. And they're also a little haunting because had he stuck to them, some of the problems that wow. uh, came to him would not have happened. Yeah. And other passages like that. So that became the idea. And interestingly, as I started teaching these, the response has been off the chart, hmm. which maybe it shouldn't surprise me because I have a lot of passion and commitment to those core passages. Sure. But yeah, so we have a, I don't know how many will actually put in the whole series, but I've got about 15 I've sketched out. Don't know wow. if we'll get them all done, wow. but there are passages that I've gone back to again and again. And at this chapter of life thinking, well, you know, if the Lord called me home the next three, four, five years, what would I want, you know, to have left on the shelf, so mm-hmm. to speak? And those are ones that I wanted to be sure weren't on the shelf and, and to get them recorded and uh, interact with people. So benchmarks. So we're using Psalm 101, Colossians 1, 20, 29, and Psalm 90. Those are the only ones I'll tease right now. But those are the those are sort of the, the foundation passages that I've gone back to again and again. Hope to do a couple on the Holy Spirit yeah. because I find so much misinformation mm-hmm. from people when they think the Spirit told them this or told them that sure. or led them or guided them or whatever. And I'm always cautious with that language. So... Hopefully there'll be you know things you go back to. A benchmark technically is a standard by which something is measured. Mm-hmm. So if you go to Long's Peak, there's a benchmark that the United States Geological Survey put up there, and it says it's 14,255 feet tall. Mm-hmm. That's a benchmark. They measured it. So that's the idea behind yeah. the series. Well, let's listen now. What I want to do is look at some things that have been benchmarks, not only in my life, but in other people's lives, 
looking back over 50 years of walking with Christ, 40 years of marriage, working with couples and individuals over the years. Uh, But I want to talk to you a little bit about what a benchmark is. If you looked up the definition, it's a standard point of reference to where other things are measured. That's the clinical definition. A standard point of reference to which other things are measured. And there's actually some hobbyists that have created a thing called benchmarking. And there are over 740,000 benchmarks in the U.S. They are typically adhere to something permanent. Now that can be debated, but that's the, the definition. Between the U.S. Geological Survey, between the Forestry Service, between the Corps of Engineers, cities with monuments, all kinds of things have benchmarks. But the National Geodetic System, GDS, is what started this, and they one, one illustration are mountains. Any of you backpackers, climbers, hikers? 100 years ago, I used to do such things, and um, we climbed Long's Peak. Long's is one of the 14ers in America, and it's a walk-up. It's an all-day affair. You go 4 or 5 in the morning, and you get back about you know 6 at night. It's a wonderful hike. Anyone can do it. You just have to be able to walk all day. And uh, at the top is this benchmark. And this benchmark is the, you can read it somewhat, U.S. Geological Survey, and they changed it if you look very carefully. It used to be 14,256, now it's 14,255 because we have this thing called GPS. And GPS is a little more accurate than the way they used to measure things with triangulations. So uh, these things change. But the benchmark, you go up there and you hike it to the top and you take a picture. We call them ego shots. You stand at the benchmark and you have people take your picture and whatever, it could, maybe your ISAX, whatever you want to have in your photograph. And that is a benchmark. It's a permanent object that becomes a standard by which other things are measured. That seems fitting when it comes to Spiritual truth. Do you have some benchmarks in your life? The first and foremost one, I would hope and pray all of you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that you've come to trust in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. By putting your trust in Christ alone, your faith, your belief in the works he's done on your behalf, in your place, instead of you, you then receive a gift called eternal life, a free gift called eternal life. It's not based on your works. It's not based on walking an aisle or praying a prayer or saying the right set of words in a prayer. It's do you trust in him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself? That is the baseline benchmark. And if you don't know Christ, that is truly the most important decision you'll ever make in your human life, your earthly life, is to know him. He lived, he died, he was buried. He came back from the dead. He conquered the grave, some of the songs say. And by trusting in him, he forgives you of your sin. He gives you eternal life. And you begin this relationship that will continue through eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not simply where you're going to spend eternity. It's with whom you're going to spend eternity. And spending eternity with Christ will blow your human and theological mind. Uh, This is not some small thing. This is an eternal thing. So if you don't know Christ, that's the first most important benchmark. And I don't believe in guilt or shame or walking aisle or praying prayer. I believe God's spirit and God's word and hearing the gospel uh, brings people to him. And it doesn't matter the vestiges of what churches we might have grown up in, how, what, you know, we were Catholic or Methodist or Methobacterian or Presbyterian or Charismatic. I don't care what the background is. The gospel is the centerpiece. 
Have you trusted in Christ alone to do alone what he can do? He's the only one who can forgive you of sins. He's the only one that can give you eternal life in him. And that is what should be the core of any Bible teaching church in our country. That's the first benchmark. Now there are other benchmarks along the way. And those benchmarks would be discipleship and growing in Christ and so forth and so on. And um, over the years, as a child, I vividly remember my father taking me by the hand, albeit reluctantly, and making me talk to older people. I always hated that. I want you to come over here. And he had this thing about you, when you shake someone's hand, you give them a firm hand. Any of you have that, Dad? A firm handshake. Now, this dead fish handshake, a firm handshake. And he, was, he had this sort of rules and regs. Look them in the eye when you talk. And, of course, being a good dad, I bequeathed my children with the same thing. <laughs> Look them in the eye. Say hello. Give them a firm handshake. Talk to them as an adult. And that began in me, uh, for which I'm grateful to him, a pattern of learning from people who were older and smarter than me. When I was in third grade, I played chess and, uh, with my brother and father, and there was a man down the street in the 60s. He, was, uh, he and his wife had no children. He had a little duplex, and uh, we'd play chess. He'd mop me around the board. He'd laugh within the first three moves, but he taught me. There was another man in our neighborhood named Avi Lusky. That's a Jewish name if it didn't catch you. Avi Lusky. Avi was one of these guys that could go around in gym shorts without a shirt and look good. And Avi shot baskets and played football with us in the dirt lot in our neighborhood. And uh, I was a gangly, tall, skinny, uncoordinated kid. And Avi taught me how to dribble and shoot layups and shoot free throws. And he was encouraging. Um, I could go down the line of people that influenced me. My dad got me into photography in sixth grade, the darkroom side of things, developing black and white film. We converted my closet to a makeshift darkroom, and we took black and white pictures with 120 format film, and we would put them on the little reels and, and develop them in the darkroom, and then we made contact prints, and then I saved up money for mowing yards and bought an enlarger and I enlarged prints, and I ended up working through, through high school two years at a photo lab. Uh, learning darkroom techniques. I was never that great on one side of the camera, but I enjoyed the darkroom aspects of it. Of course, that's all gone away now. It's all done on your computer. But 100 years ago, that's the way we did it. And I went to work for this photo lab. And I learned from people that were master processors, custom color printers. I'd never done color. That was a big change from black and white to color in photography. And so all these times, I'm learning and learning. I pushed wrenches. My dad never took a car to have it repaired, unless it was air conditioning. For some reason, that was one thing he didn't want to fuss with. We did brakes, we did, we did uh, water pumps, we did timing belts. We would, some of you don't know any of what I'm talking about, but before hydraulic lifters, you had to go in and adjust the lifters ma manually. And, and we would change oil pumps. We would take the car, we'd take the car almost apart and fix it. And, and my dad was a wonderful jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And we had this, this, my brother and I had this saying, Dad will break something in the process of fixing something else. And that's true. And I've inherited that gene from my dad, too. I did the same thing. But we learned how to do it. And you know what? I became a mechanic, a diesel mechanic, and I pushed wrenches through college. That's how I made my living. And when I was in the dealership and I was into something I didn't know, I went to the older mechanics who maybe didn't have a high school education, but they were a lot smarter than me when it came to what was under a hood or in a diesel truck, especially. Diesels were a whole different ballgame. 
When I came to Christ, it was only natural for me to pursue other men who had been Christians longer than me. And I was a sponge. I know I'm unusual in a lot of respects, but I wanted to learn. I wanted to grow. I wanted to know the Bible. Most of you have heard me teach. The first time I left the Catholic Church to visit a Bible-teaching church, and a man opened the Bible and explained it, I told the friend who had coerced me to go with him, it was as if I had never taken, tasted sugar and someone gave me a milkshake. I had no idea that existed. I sat there after 45 minutes going, how did he get all of that out of a few verses of the Bible? And that really became my passion and interest in life. And I, I just dove into the scripture. So we go off to seminary. And Cindy and I were in a, a, a little church called Trinity Fellowship, and um, it was full of men who could read New Testament Greek, who taught theology. Some of them were professors at the seminary I attended. I mean, I was like a, a third grader among postgraduates, biblically and theologically. It was a feast. We loved our church, and there were marriages we wanted to emulate. There were a couple we're still friends with uh, in, in, uh, since 1981, Robert and Liz, and they've been married three or four years longer than Cindy and me, and we followed them and chased them and learned from them. They had kids. We didn't have kids yet, and I wanted to learn from people that were older. There were a couple of elders of that church that took me under their wing. Dr. Alan Hull, still living in his late 80s, he was an MD, he was a nephrologist, and a brilliant man knew the scripture, knew people, knew shepherding, and he would give me his time. And these people poured into me over time. It was a rich, rich experience. Then we went to our first little church in, uh, in Grand Prairie, Texas, a sweet church, but it was a different culture. It was more of a blue-collar culture. And I learned very quickly, as a pastor in a church, I was 28 years old. Can you believe that? And uh, these people could be my parents. That's how old they were. What's this whippersnapper got to teach them? Not much. Not much. They were very patient with me. But over the years, Cindy and I had to work harder and harder to find people to emulate. And that's not saying that we were some you know, super star, strong, rising Christian couple. I looked around a room and said, what marriage do I want to be like? I looked around a room of people and said, who is parenting their kids well? I looked around a room of people and said, who, who's studying the Bible on their own and growing spiritually? And that list becomes pretty short in most churches. We went to D.C. where we were for almost 12 years, and we loved our time there, and that church was chock full of men and women who were further down the road than Cindy and me. And as we pursued people and ministered and walked alongside for 40 years now, uh, what we have gleaned and learned, these are benchmarks. They are timeless truth. They go back to the scripture. Now, what I'm going to share in the weeks to come, the first three in particular, are passages that are benchmarks to me personally. They may not be passages that are benchmarks to you. That's fine. What I want to motivate you is to ground yourself on some benchmarks so that you know 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 what you believe. 
Because when the tide changes, when things go crazy as they are right now, when the church is under assault, which it is, when uh, the Bible is moved from the pulpit to the back, and we're talking, even what I'm talking about now, arguably is not really exposition. Uh, when that happens, do you have benchmarks that you go back to and say, Long's Peak is 14,255 feet tall, period. And we're going to nail it in the granite and say so. So everyone who comes behind us knows this is a benchmark. And I want to use three passages to do that. Now part of the reason I'm doing this is when I turned 63 years ago, I looked around again and I said, who is living in their 60s and 70s well and I want to continue doing what they're doing? Because truth be told, when you retire or when you have grandchildren, there's two things people do when they retire. They travel and they visit grandkids. Nothing wrong with that. But to me, it was like that song, Is That All There Is? Is that what we worked so hard and so long for? I asked Dave Ramsey. I, I, I was trying to joke with him. He didn't think it was funny. I said, Dave, I've been living like no one else, and now you tell me to live like no one else. What does that mean? He was giving me this dirty look. Oh, I shouldn't ask. Sorry. Uh, but what does it mean to live like no one else? you got to define it. No one can tell you. And it was a stark realization that, Michael, you're going to be, entropy is tough to beat. You're going to be just like everybody else unless you make some significant changes in what you do as you retire, semi-retire, look at this next decade or two. I like to look at life at decades. You in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, we all have different things that consume our lives. Most of us who've had kids in this room know when you have children in your 20s and 30s, your life the sun rises and sets on raising kids. That's all you think about. And, and you're obsessed with it. Then they become middle schoolers and teens, and you wonder, why did I have kids? <laughs> and then if you survive those years, they become young adults, and you love them and have a wonderful relationship with them. But believe it or not, you're going to be married, most of us, to our spouse longer than we will be parenting children in our home. Now, you're still going to parent at some level, usually writing a check, but you're a parent at some level, but it's different. And all of a sudden when empty nest hits, and you know couples that have gone and struggles, they don't know what to do. What do you do now when the last child leaves? You travel and visit grandchildren. Okay, if that's what you want to do. I just felt that was a wonderful thing, but not quite enough. You know what, you know what sitting on your laurels means? Laurels go back to the Roman period. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, about a perishable wreath. And the Romans would use a shiny, glossy leaf and braid it, and that was your crown for winning the race. If you look at pictures, or more importantly, statues of the Caesars, they had a laurel wreath on their head. Laurels are an accomplishment. Becoming Caesar is a big deal. Think of a baccalaureate. Think of a Nobel laureate, a poet laureate. You're being awarded an honor for accomplishing a bachelor's degree. You're being awarded an honor for some piece of literature. So the phrase, sitting on your laurels, means what? Sitting on that which you once accomplished. So a benchmark can be a laurel. You can sit on your laurels. And we all know people that do this. And it begins with sentences like, back when I was your age. Back when I worked in my career. 
It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is revealing, and we all do it. And when it comes to the spiritual life, it is chilling to me personally. I do not want to sit on my laurels. I want to grow until I die. To do that, I have to live like no one else. So when COVID hit, I put together a reading group. And uh, uh, there's one person in here who's part of that group. I picked uh, eight, nine guys that are smarter than me and who like to read heavy-duty stuff. And I said, let's do a, a Zoom. We're doing WebEx on Monday mornings at 8.30, and we all pipe in, and we're going through Augustine's Confessions a chapter at a time. It's, it's tough sledding. And we're reading commentaries and different translations on Augustine. And I'm not saying anybody should do this. Only sick people like me and these eight friends do this kind of thing. But my point was, I wanted to learn some things that I, I know I read in seminary, but I can't prove it anymore. Uh, I'm reading a couple of books on theology by Philip Carey and others, and I'm, I'm trying to expose my, things to, to my mind to new information, nothing new in the Scripture, but to force me not to rest on my theological laurels. Just because I know something doesn't mean I can't be refreshed and challenged and renewed. One of the benchmarks we'll talk about in the weeks ahead, God willing, is the role of the Holy Spirit, which I think is a terribly misunderstood topic among Christians today. So... With this, I'm taking classes. I'm taking some great courses on Hebrew to kind of brush up my Hebrew. And I was watching, uh, you know, a lot of us have binged Netflix during COVID, right? You don't have to raise your hand. When you're in the middle of binging something, do you at some point get, will this thing just end? I mean, you're, you're taking a story that's an hour-long story and make it four seasons long. Let's land the plane on this. And then when they start changing things up, I get irritated. And then when the, you can tell when the screenwriters got bored, you know, and it's like, uh, but, but what? You have to finish it because you got to know how it ends, right? And you also think maybe there's something redemptive. How many times have you finished one? There was nothing redemptive in this dumb show that I just watched. And I don't know how many times Cindy can attest to this. I'll go upstairs. I'll spend an hour looking for something to watch. Not watching something, looking for something to watch. And then I pull out a DVD. I can watch that instead. Uh, because there's so much vacuous information out there that's mind-numbing. And then I have this guilty feeling after I've watched it, going, easily you just wasted that 90 minutes of your life you're never going to get back. Which is one reason we suspended our cable years ago. We don't have satellite or cable now for four, almost four years. It's been the best thing, three years, best thing we ever did because I don't watch the same news programs and get lathered up and my blood pressure goes high for an hour and a half, two hours, watching the same thing over and over and over and over. I can watch it while I shave for 10 minutes and stop, and I'm done. I don't need to do that. I'm not telling you how to live. I'm giving you some insights on how I live. A friend, when I turned 63, gave me a book called The Portable Curmudgeon. I resemble that remark. And in reading through some of these curmudgeon statements, it was interesting, the theme, where people complain about the mundane. People complain about the routine. If I can add to it, people are realizing, I don't want to sit on my laurels. I don't want to rest and be just like everybody else. When I was in college, we had an educational psychology book. I did a double major and a minor in psych. And it, this educational psychology book, which I regret throwing out, had on the front chapter of each, uh, the front page on each chapter, a cartoon 
that was illustrative of what was to come. And I'll never forget a number of those plates, but one in particular were all these guys, kind of long-haired, disheveled, uh, kind of hippie-looking guys, a little bit overweight, probably in the late 40s. And one guy had a bright green tie on. And the consensus said, but Norm, if you wear that, you won't be like the rest of us. And see, that's my sense of humor. I love that cartoon. What is it saying? Don't be like everybody else. As a believer in Christ, you have to say, I'm not going to let the tide take me. And I don't know what that looks like for you specifically. Let me suggest maturity is something we don't talk about much. It's absent from our vocabulary, but these passages that I'm going to look at speak to becoming more like Christ. That's hard to measure in some respects, but does that mean we don't measure it? Just because I don't have a checklist, am I more like Christ? Do I stop there? Let me give you a working definition of maturity, and this isn't perfect. It's one that that I have worked on in my own life. Maturity is when you stop blaming your past, you own your present, and you plan your future. Stop blaming your past, own your present, plan your future. It's true of marriage. It's true of whether you were hurt as a child, if you were a victim, if you were abused, if people did harmful things to you. You, probably everyone in this room carries some kind of scar that happened to us as a child. Some may be deeper and more uh, longstanding. But at some point you realize, I am not going to be defined by my past. Uh, Do you have teachers that shamed you? I can still see a teacher that shamed me in fourth grade breathing down my... They used to sit us in the classroom based on the grade on the test. So the person that got the highest grade sat here, and then it went down from there, and the stupidest kid sat in the back. That's what the message was. And on some fluke, I had made the highest grade on the test in that day, and I was so happy, and the teacher told me to come sit up on the front chair, and I proudly walked to the first chair, and she looked at me and said, let's see how long you can stay there. I still remember that. I still remember that. Do you live as a victim of that? Messages we heard as children and teenagers can wound and scar and be indelible. Maturity is when you stop blaming the past. You can't live in the shadow. You know what? People that do those things to us, half of them don't remember they did them. I'm sure that teacher never remembers saying that. She'd deny it today if I told her that story. What kid would make something like that up? Doesn't matter. You're going to live under the abuse and the hurt and the victimization. That Do not hear me minimize it. Are you going to let that control your life? This is maturity. Owning your present. Okay, this is who I am today. This is who you are today. Do you own it? And then planning the future. And these last two are harder in some respects than stop blaming the past. Because you've got to live like no one else, and I don't know exactly what that means for you. And I have to figure it out just like you have to figure it out. But I do know a baseline. Are you growing in Christ? To put it real succinctly, are you any more like Jesus Christ than you were a year ago? Or two years ago? Or five years ago? Are you growing in Christ? So the three passages I want to look at, today I want to look at Psalm 101 briefly with you. Psalm 101 is a royal enthronement psalm. It is a psalm of David. It was more than likely written on the occasion of his own installation or inauguration. We can't be sure of that. I'm fairly sure of it. We can't be certain. 
the psalm literature, the, the 150 psalms are not just a song book. It taught theology. It taught history. And this song, poem, historical collection of books was not just a boom chick song. You know, we hear a song, Be Thou My Vision. Most of you could perhaps get 80% of the lyric without even thinking about it because you've heard it enough times, and the music and the meter and the rhyme make it stick. Think about the Psalms that way for the Hebrew. The devout Hebrew, we, we don't have rhyme obviously in Hebrew or in English, but the structure, and we don't know the melodies, we don't know the songs, but the melodies were adhered, the structure was adhered to a song that made it memorable. I think it's very um, logical to believe the pious Jew knew all 150 Psalms. The Ascent Psalms, when they went up for Passover and they went up to Jerusalem to worship, uh, they sang the Ascent Psalms. They knew the top 40. And that was part of what you taught your children. So when we read these Psalms, keep that in mind. Um, This primarily speaks to the Messiah. It's a futuristic psalm. He's talking about himself as a king, but he's also giving clear references to what will be the Messianic king. Um, It ultimately applies to Christ. There are three big branches of this psalm that because he's a king, he has to be under the law, meaning he's subject to it, but he also has to be exemplary of the law. And that was sort of, I would call this David's as for me and my house. And one of the reasons this psalm is a benchmark for me is I've studied it, memorized it, taught it over and over again, and every time I go through it, I see new layers that I missed the first few times. And it is a striking passage because what he's saying is if I'm going to be a king and a leader, this is the way I'm going to do it. I want to get insight on that because what? I want to find other men and women who are following Christ well and lean in on that conversation. How do they follow God faithfully when everybody else fell away? Let me read the first four verses of Psalm 101, please. I will sing of loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Look at the words, I will. I will sing, I will sing, I will give heed, I will walk, I will set no worthless thing. There's six of them depending on your English translation. These are declarative terms. This is a choice the worshiper is making. By the way, when he begins, I will sing of loving kindness and justice, he's making a choice to sing. Some of us in this room maybe don't have very good singing voices. I do not. I have to make the choice to sing. When I was uh, pastoring in Northern Virginia, and my two older girls would sit as a family. When I sang, they, my girls would laugh at me. And my wife would bite her tongue and try not to laugh at me. And uh, I said, well, I'm trying to make a joyful noise, and that would just make them laugh more. Uh, some of us don't have the, the, the ability to sing like you know, men and women in Nashville, right? So he's making a choice. When you read I will in the Psalms, don't miss the obvious. This is a choice the worshiper is bringing to the table. I will sing a loving kindness. I will sing praise. I will give heed. I will walk within my house in a certain way. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I will know no evil. Don't miss the, the obvious parts of the text. Let's talk about this in three 
three breakouts. Number one, a commitment to God. The first one is his vertical commitment to God. I will sing of loving and kindness, loving kindness notices. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. The psalmist begins with a vertical and horizontal acknowledgement. We've talked about loving kindness many times in this room. Loving kindness, I would argue, is if it's not the most important, it's one of the most important Old Testament terms. If you use an ESV, it's the word steadfast love. If you use other versions, they, they morph it into all kinds of things, love, justice, mercy, kind. It gets lost in the translations, literally. So that's one reason I like ESV or, or NASB, because it always translates loving kindness the same way every time. The word chesed is twofold, a very simple uh, explanation of it. Covenant, promise, chosen people. I've talked about this before. CPCP, chesed, covenant promises, chosen people. God chose a certain people group and he made covenant promises to them. That's chesed. He's going to be loving and loyal to his promises and to his people. Or to say it simply, he's going to be loving and loyal to his word and to his chosen people. That's what God's loving kindness is about. David is saying, as king, the first most important thing I'm going to do is praise God for his loving kindness. Why is that important? It all begins there. If God did not choose his people and give them promises, all bets are off. And he chose David to be the king. He chose Israel to be his people. He made them promises. And David says, as I lead this, I'm going to sing of God's chesed. And then he says justice. And this, I would argue, is the two-edged sword justice. In order for justice to be dispensed, you punish the guilty in order to vindicate the innocent. It's got to be two edges. So if a person goes to jail for some crime, let's say a person uh, hurt someone, murdered someone, whatever, uh, we're going to cut justice, we're going to punish this person for what he or she did in order to vindicate the one who was hurt. How often have you heard in uh, some long, long trial and finally the person goes to jail or maybe it's a state with capital punishment? You agree or disagree, but when it happens, then they interview the family and friends, and what do they say? Justice was served. We now have closure. Closure. Because when injustice prevails, it's this nagging sense of it's not closed. That person murdered my wife or whatever he or she did. They need to go to jail, and now I can rest. So he's speaking of God's chesed love, and his justice. So these are the verticals and the horizontals he establishes in this one little strophe. And I would say is, oh, by the way, have you recounted the loving kindnesses of God in your life? Remember that uh, sort of a silly melody hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. It's not a bad exercise. And when you get uh, playing the victim or depressed or discouraged or someone hurt your feelings, if you start recounting what God has done for you, you won't have much margin to whine. If you know Christ, he's forgiven you of your sins. That should dismantle all of us right there. If you love Christ, he forgives you again and again and again and again and again. Some of you might not acknowledge it. I acknowledge I'm still a big fat sinner. I still sin all the time. I still need mercy every single day. In thoughts and attitudes and responses, we can sin without wanting to. We just Our nature is prone that way. 
Have you recounted God's loving kindness and justice? What, when did you get something you didn't deserve? Those are lists we don't keep and ones we should probably develop. The second area of the psalm, verses 2 to 5, we have this commitment to God, or we just say commitment to Christ. The second one is a commitment to our character. And this is where the psalm goes from vertical, and let me argue, to his internal life. Let me reread verses 2 through 5. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Let's expand this a little bit, what it means, this character aspect. The word integrity is a word that occurs three times in this psalm, but it's translated differently. It's translated, translated blameless, depending on your version. Integrity is the decision he makes. The blameless way is the way of integrity. Now, we know that an integer is indivisible. So when the Bible speaks of integrity, it's are you indivisible? Or we might say squeaky clean. Or you may have heard it uh, colloquially translate, uh, defined, uh, what you do when you're all alone. Integrity is when you're home and no one's there, and what do you do when you're all alone? Integrity is when you travel on the road and you're in a hotel room by yourself and no one you know is a thousand miles around you and you're by yourself. What do you do when you're all alone? I would turn up the heat a little bit on that definition and say integrity is what I think about in the privacy of my mind. It's not just what I do when I'm alone at home. It's what I think about in the privacy of the corridors of my mind. Um, when my kids were little, we would take the glasses out of the hot soapy water and make them sing. And you, get, you wash them in hot soapy water. And, you, and, and when your kids try to do it, their hands are, have a little oil on it and they, they can't make it sing. So you say, you've got to wash your hands in warm soapy water before you can make the glass sing. That to me is a great definition of integrity, squeaky clean. Nothing on my finger, nothing on the rim of the glass, I can make it sing. You see these guys that show up in the fairs and they've got all these wine glasses and they play Handel's Messiah, you know? You gotta have a hobby, I guess, I don't know. How do you demonstrate integrity? How do you demonstrate it? I will walk within my house and the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. When others aren't watching me, I'm going to keep my integrity, and I'm not going to look at things that would pull me away. It's a powerful warning and a powerful admonition, and it's also kind of haunting, because what happens to David? He's alone at home on the roof of his house when he sees a woman bathing. The very thing he made this commitment to, arguably, I will walk within my house and the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Now, granted, David is a man for God's own heart because when he sinned and when he was confronted, he repented. And that's the difference between him and many others in Scripture. But it's a chilling reminder. Just because you make a declaration does not mean you're going to be able to keep it because the sin nature is strong. He will not tolerate evil, verses 3 and 4. And this is a hard passage for some. Uh, some, of the Bible, some of your Bibles might have a notation in the margin about the wicked. It's the word belial. 
I will not tolerate evil. What he's saying is that the people around me cannot affect me with their choices. And this is sort of a, a gang mindset. He said, they're gonna, those who fall away, those who are disloyal aren't going to run with me. Uh, Cindy and I have told this story umpteen times when we're around uh, parents with teenagers who sometimes have some creative ways of getting in trouble. Uh, we had a friend in D.C. who had uh, three sons and one daughter, and he had this theory with his boys. He said, one teenage boy, half a brain. Two teenage boys, a third of a brain. Three teenage boys, no brain. And he had story upon story upon story of what his three sons would get involved in, and uh, that's for another time. But what happens is, if you have disloyal people around you, you will do things you wouldn't normally do. And David says, no, I'm I'm not going to tolerate that. I'm going to get them out from under my purview. He's going to remove the evil that influences him. Uh, He will not tolerate the haughty, those who gossip, those who slander, those who spread words. There's no room for the proud. Um, And this is a, a pointed question, not meant to stir up guilt or shame by my words, but Every time I read this, I ask myself, Michael, what worthless thing is before your eyes? And the the, the wonderful aspects of this technology, now we have a computer in our pocket, is the portal it opens into worthless things. It's a dangerous tool, it's a powerful tool, and it takes a person of integrity to not put worthless things before his or her eyes. What worthless thing is before your eyes? Notice the transition in verse 6. My eyes will be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way, that's back to the word integrity, he who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. He's going to surround himself with faithful people, number one. When a president is elected, um, I am always interested to see who he, or maybe she at some point, surrounds himself with. Because their cabinet is critical because those are the men and women who are going to work with K Street to write policy and put things together for that administration. And you hope, and no matter who's in the White House, you hope they have men and women of caliber, of integrity. Oh, it's really great when they're Christians too. Uh, but you want to surround yourself with people. Think if you were a king, what would be one of the first things you would want to do? Forget your power to protect yourself and your kingdom. You know, one of the first orders of business, the king was supposed to write his own copy under the watchful care of the scribes, a copy of the law. I think that was just the first five books. I have no way of knowing that. Some, some of you Old Testament uh, students might know better than me. But just think about if he was just to write, and to be a scribe, you're writing the very words of God was a, was a challenging, dangerous thing. If you make a mistake, you roll it up in a scroll and you bury it in the sand. You can't burn it or destroy it because you put God's word on a piece of paper. So the idea was he was to remind himself. Now, if you're king, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Couldn't David have picked, let's call his, uh, you know, his leadership team and said, every morning uh, when the sun comes up, you're going to be in my chambers and we're going to read and study the Old Testament for an hour. 
He was king. What do you do at the first hour of your morning in your house? I'm going to surround myself. I'm going to look at those who are faithful. He says, this is a great declaration. Only the blameless will minister to me. The term minister is lost in our language. It means serving in the Old Testament. To minister was to serve. The Levitical priest served God at the temple complex, whether they were herding animals, slaughtering animals, offering sacrifices, cleaning up the ashes, bringing the wood and the water in. That was all called ministry. And that was to serve the temple complex, which served Yahweh Elohim as their God. And David is saying, I'm going to surround myself with people who are blameless so they will minister to me. The ones who practice deceit, they don't get to stay in my house. Those who lie, don't get to stay in my house. And then we have this uncomfortable verse, if we don't understand the setting, every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land. So the idea was if you had infiltrators, if you had sedition, if you had those who were against God, those who fought against Israel's God, that you got rid of them. Fast forward in the storyline, remember this guy named Absalom? Absalom was a handsome man. He was, he was a hippie, had long, long hair. And they, he was so vain that it would weigh his hair. And you remember the story how at the end he gets caught in a tree, kind of a little bit of irony. His hair gets him caught in a tree and he, he dies. But um, Absalom was David's beloved son. And Absalom went to the edge of the city and he would call out to the people, Oh, if I were your king, I would listen to you. What's he saying? I would administer justice. Your complaints would not go unheard. So he's undermining the king who's in all kinds of trouble now. He's undermining the king. That's sedition. But it was irony in the fact that David says, every morning, I won't be dilatory. I will deal with problems. I will deal with sin. I will deal with wicked people. Every day I'm going to deal with it. And he doesn't. He does it in his own home. And that becomes part of his undoing. In this, uh, let's call it his inaugural song, in his installation song, if you will, I'm going to do this every day. They're high aspirations. I don't mean to, uh, to speak lightly of him, but he made a decision on the front end. Had he kept, he'd have done well. As would you, as would I, right? Just some observations about this and why it's a benchmark to me. Number one, our commitment to Christ is critical. There, there's, no, there's no other commitment in your life that means as much as your commitment to Christ. If you've uh, trusted in Christ and Christ alone as I began, that's your benchmark. That's your most important benchmark. Are you developing that relationship with him? Are you spending time in the word? Are you spending time in prayer? Uh, I won't guilt or shame you out of seven days a week or five out of seven or six out of seven. I don't do that. I don't believe in that. You have to want to cultivate your relationship with Christ. No one can make you do it. We can encourage one another. We can motivate one another. Um, for example, I would not be reading Augustine's Confessions if I didn't have eight guys, depending on me, tomorrow morning at 8.30, that we've all, we've all read it, and we're all going to log in on WebEx tomorrow and talk about it. I need that type of, you know, in certain parts of my life. Someone, I think Fred Smith said, uh, maturity is when you turn a discipline into a reflex. Maturity is turning discipline into reflex. 
And when you start the Christian life, it takes discipline to read the Bible and to pray. And those seem antiquated and simple. And we have a stack of how to pray, the prayer handbook by Ken Boa. I, I think it's unparalleled. How it's paint by numbers, how to pray. Why? Because we're terrible at prayer. We say the same thing every time we have a meal. I triple dog dare you not to say the same thing at lunch today. You said the last 300 lunches. The best way out of this is ask somebody else to pray. Save yourself. If you're not spending time in the Word, if I'm not spending time in the Word, if I'm not, I'm not going to put a time on it. Start somewhere, five minutes a day. I don't care. Work, grow in it. It's a relationship, not a religion. You've heard me say it. It's not that you have to, you get to. It's not that you should, it's that you can. Show me a man or woman spending time in the Word and time in prayer, and I will show you a man or woman that's very likely growing. Because when you expose yourself to this stuff again and again and again, you get, like me, a flat forehead going easily. You forgot that. You're not doing that. you got to realize. It doesn't take much reading uh, if you're a believer where something's going to catch you and stop you in your tracks and go, Lord, I need help. Or you might say, Lord, thank you for this. I mean, the word is active and alive. It's truthful. It's substantial. And was it Spurgeon that said, no one ever outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. So when that discipline of doing it becomes a reflex, you've made the corner. You've made the corner. For some of you young men and women, when I came to Christ in my teens, uh, by the time I was in college, I was trying really hard to have a, a time in the Lord devotion. And uh, I didn't know what that meant or how to do it. But I, I went out and bought two things. I bought an alarm clock and I bought a $20 coffee pot uh, from this department store. It was called Gibson's. Some of you might remember Gibson's before Walmart came to town. and No more Gibson's. But Gibson's. $20 coffee pot. I'd never made coffee before. I didn't like coffee. I bought milk and sugar to tolerate it. And I set my alarm at 5 a.m. And someone told me, if you do something for 21 days, it becomes a habit. So I did. For 21 days, I set my alarm at 5 o'clock. I went in and got the coffee going. I showered to help me wake up. I put my, uh, my clothes on. I sat in this little office I had at this rent house. And for 21 days, seven days a week, I got up. And you know, the 22nd day, it wasn't any easier. <laughs> it was not a habit. I still hated it. But I kept doing it. And then I would do it, well, five out of seven days, that's okay, Lord, okay. Five out of seven, well, four out of seven days, Lord, uh, no, seven out of seven. I went back and forth. I'm not proud. I'm just going to tell you, three years, three years I fussed with this. Feeling guilty, ashamed, all points in between. If you're a good Christian, why wouldn't you read the Bible? If you're a good Christian, why wouldn't you pray? And I would get up and I would stare at, no, no computers, I'd stare at those books and try to stay awake drinking coffee. And go, Why am I doing this? I want to go to bed. Three years. And then one day, it was like, I can't wait. I hope it doesn't take you three years. But don't be ashamed or live not doing it because you don't. That gets you nowhere. That's stop blaming the past. Let's own the present. Get your nose in a book, not just to be a person of Bible knowledge, so you can cultivate your commitment to Christ. You are bought with a price. I was bought with a price. My life is not my own. That's chilling to me because I'm a very selfish person. Secondly, character is everything. It was a presidential 
period in my lifetime where character came under this great assault, and the message was, well, you can still be a great president even though your character is not so good. And everybody went you know, crazy on both sides of this argument. And I remember even when that president was in office thinking, no, your character is everything. If I can't trust you, I used to often say this, but it's not very politically correct these days. I, I would say, I've got six men that I've known for 30 plus years, and I'll just pick Dave as one or Ralph as one, and I say, I would trust Ralph with my wife and my checkbook. When we were living in D.C., we lost a pastor friend on staff with us, and um, Ralph stepped in, and Ralph was just, he knows how to do things. He knows how to work behind the scenes. And, I, and so he told me, if you die, I'm calling Ralph. So good. Do you have people that know your secrets that you can trust because their character's everything? They're squeaky clean. And that's the kind of person you want to be. That's the kind of person I want to be. Unimpeachable. Third, we need trustworthy people around us. I need these friends that I have cultivated over these 30 plus years, and you've heard me use this expression often. Dave Gibson gave me the phrase. I have to give attribution to him. He said, I don't know if you need a dope slap or you need me to encourage you right now. And so when I have a problem or an issue or you know, something going, I'm going through, I'll call Dave or Robert or Ralph or any one of these guys, and I bounce it off them, and I'll say, you have permission to give me a dope slap right now. And all those men would say the same, and I would say to them, you need me, I'm on the next plane. Only the faithful will minister to me, is what David said. You've got to have an inner cabinet of people that know your soul and your secret and still have your best in mind. There are plenty of people out there that will stab you in the back. There's plenty of people out there that will gossip, and that's why it takes time to cultivate those relationships. And when you find them, you hang on to them. And I would also suggest they're probably not the people you'd pick out of a lineup. They're, they're probably gifted differently, have different insights, different expertise. And I will say this, if you're in Middle Tennessee right now, and you don't have some people that know your soul, and you know theirs, and they are supportive of you, it's not for lack of people. It's for lack of you taking the initiative to develop those friendships. And then the question, the last one that I asked as we opened, are you, am I any more like Christ? Howard Hendricks was one of my professors and mentors. He passed away a few years back. And Prof would often, in his uh, very distinct way, he, I, won't, I won't mimic him the way he did it, but he would often say this very elaborately. He would say, if you were never more ready for heaven than the day you were saved, why are you still here? If you were never any more ready for heaven than the day you were saved, why are you still here? And I would ask the question, are you growing? Are you becoming any more like Christ? Have you written something down over the years? I would, I would like to be more patient. I would like to be less anxious. I would like to be less critical. I'd like to be more forgiving of people. I'd like to be a, a godly man or woman who stands out with, with great character. Those are intangible things to ask. And the great part about those prayer requests are they'll only come about if God answers them. It's not a matter of discipline or self-will. Do I talk too much? Do I not talk? Do I need to care about people more than I care about myself? Are you any more like Jesus, am I, than a year ago? 
Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Tycho. Thank you.